Uh, I want to talk to us today about uh, three kinds of leaders, three types of leaders. Um, the elections were two weeks ago. Um, it's never a good idea to talk about politics from the pulpit, so I'm not going to kick that hornet's nest. Um, but every time there's an election, um, it does make me contemplate the characteristics of a leader. What makes a good leader? What makes a bad leader? Um, you know, what are some traits that might make me uh, or some of us uh, want to vote for or support one kind of leader, make it easier for us to follow one kind of leader? And what are some traits that make it difficult for us? Um, and not just, you know, for people who are running for office and politics. Uh, we'll talk about this later on. Uh, the Bible actually says a lot of us, many of us, maybe all of us, at some point in our lives will be a type of leader to someone else. Uh, whether it's a parent, a, a church leader, a husband, a future parent, um, leader to younger friends. A mentor. Uh, there are many types of leaders. Uh, today, uh, with this passage, I hope to talk to us about three kinds of leaders. Um, we'll just keep it very simple. First, we'll talk about what a bad leader looks like. Then we'll talk about what a good leader looks like. And then, last of all, we'll talk about what the best leader looks like. All right, so bad, good, and then best. Um, but before we do that, let's do just a little bit of background. This chapter at the end of Samuel 2 has always confounded me. And the reason is this. The entirety of Samuel 2, the book of Samuel 2, if you could give it one sentence summary, Samuel to 2 Samuel is about the reign of David. Uh, it begins with the death of Saul in chapter 1. And it ends, uh, actually, if you read the very next chapter, beginning in 1 Kings, it ends with the death of David. So of all the books in Scripture, 2 Samuel is about the reign of David. That's the book. And it spans the entire reign, the, his, the entire uh, uh, rule of David. And... As you might expect, 2 Samuel kind of progresses in, in this kind of, you know, crescendo, this, this upward arc, story arc, as David gains more power, as, as we see him, uh, even after he falls uh, in sin with Bathsheba, but, but then comes back and uh, repents and is restored. Um, it kind of ends on a really good note, in fact. Uh, the previous two chapters... 2 Samuel chapters 22 to 23, uh, the Bible records David's last words, among which David says in 2 Samuel 22 verse 47, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. And those would be wonderful, wonderful concluding words to sum up the life of David, wouldn't it? I mean, God was his rock. Um, David relied on God many, many times for his salvation. And so uh, the previous chapters would, would seem like that it would be a good ending for David's story. But yet, 
there's an additional chapter, this chapter, chapter 24, where David sins. And instead of having David's life end on a, on a very high note, it kind of ends on this very, very sour, sour note. And so we, I've always asked myself, why? Well, we're going to talk about that today a little bit. But first, uh, the bad leader. In chapter 24, uh, David conducts a census of Israel. Now, we didn't read those verses, and just the, the census itself could be another sermon, but we're just going to briefly summarize. He conducts a sense of census of Israel, uh, particularly of the number of people that are able to fight for him. The Bible clearly says this was a sin. Why? Uh, basically because David had started relying on himself rather than God. David. If there's one thing we can say about David's life is that all throughout his life, David relied on God for salvation, for strength. This was the case when David slayed a lion when he was a little boy. This was the case when he killed Goliath, right? It was not David's strength. It was God. This was the case when David was running from Saul. David did not rely on himself. He relied on God. This was the case when he went to war against the Philistines many, many times. But here in chapter 24, the very last chapter, David begins to rely on himself. That was the purpose of a census in counting how many fighting men there were in Israel. And it was an obvious thing. Uh, it was an obvious sin. Even David's general who was tasked with counting the people. Even he told David, look, don't do this. This is, a, this is a sin. In fact, David himself realizes this. This was the verse that we read. Uh, 2 Samuel 24, verse 10. After he conducts the census, then his conscience condemns him. And David's heart condemned him after he numbered the people. Now, the word of the Lord comes to David through the prophet Gad. And God gives David three choices. Now, these three choices are very much like those picture puzzles that we all did as children, where you were given three pictures and you were told which one is different from the others. Okay, you remember those uh, puzzles? You got three pictures and you're supposed to pick one that's different from the others. You have a dog a cat, and a car. So which one is different from the others? This is what God presents to David. Okay, um, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 13. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, here are the three choices. Which one is different from the others? Shall seven years of famine come to you and your land? Or shall you flee three months from your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? All right, those are the three choices. You've got the famine, uh, the, the, the enemies of David pursuing him, and then the plague in, in the land. Which of these three, which one is different from the others? Well, I think if, if we think about it that way, I think the answer is obvious. Right? For two of the choices, it doesn't really affect David directly. 
right? For two of the choices, for the famine and the plague, it kind of affects them indirectly, but it comes on the land. For one of the choices, for David's enemies pursuing him, the punishment comes on him directly. But for the other two, it doesn't come on him directly. It might affect him, but it doesn't, it's not as direct of a punishment. If we look at it this way, I think it's clear what David's choice should have been, right? It's not a hard test. I mean, in the SATs, they tell you process of elimination, right? If you don't know the answer, and if two of the answers seem too far out there, then you know it's choice C, right? Or choice B in this case. I think it's clear what God was trying to teach David. When we make a mistake, we need to take ownership. We need to own it. That's what a good leader does. Should not deflect. Should not blame others. Uh, least of which we should not punish others. We need to take responsibility, repent of our sins, and deal with the consequences. That's what we do each Sunday when Elder Mark does the you know, prayer of uh, confession of sin and uh, the, 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 uh, the assurance of salvation. That's what a good leader does. But David chooses differently, which tells us his heart was not really ready to repent. Even though it says in verse 10, his heart condemned him, he wasn't all, all the way there. He wasn't ready to, to take full ownership. And so he chooses the plague. He even uses good theology to cover up his, his lack of repentance. He says, oh, well, I'll choose the plague because it's only three days and God is gracious. So he might spare us. Yeah, mm-hmm. don't we all do that sometimes, right? We use good theology. I would even say this is good Reformed theology, maybe, right? He talks about the grace of God to escape personal responsibility. And so a plague comes on the land for three days and 70,000 men die. Uh, to give us a grasp of, of what this was probably like, um, you know, the last two and a half, three years, we've dealt with a plague in this country. Right? But it's been for the last two and a half to three years. Imagine all of the grief, all of the sadness, all of the sickness, all of the deaths across the two and a half to three years, all condensed into three days. That's what it was like. 70,000 men died. You know, it must have struck David right where it hurt the most. Because what did he just do? He had just counted his men. And now God said, well, at the snap of a finger, I'm going to take that away. 70,000 men died in three days. David here is a bad leader. He avoids responsibility. He shifts blame. And in doing so, he even makes everybody else suffer. But he himself doesn't really suffer. Right? There's a, there's a phrase that we've become accustomed to, unfortunately, in our politics. Right? Rules for thee, but not for me. And that's basically what David does here. Right? Punishment for thee, but not for me. 
even though I was the one that messed up. That's a bad leader. But David learns his lesson. He learns his lesson, you know, maybe three days too late, but he learns his lesson. And we see, begin to see the characteristics of a good leader. Now, if you look at verse 17, 2 Samuel 24, verse 17. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, surely I have sinned. Okay, first his heart condemns him in verse 10, but he's not totally ready to to repent and take ownership. Finally, after three days in verse 17, David says, surely I have sinned and have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray. Here's the point, right? He learns his lesson. Let your hand, I pray, be against me. And against my father's house, rather than those sheep who have done nothing wrong. David finally realizes his, his mistake. And he begins to take accountability for his own actions. That's what a good leader does. They take responsibility. They take accountability. Now, God doesn't easily let David off the hook. God does something else to confirm David's change of heart. To make sure that it was true. Uh, If you look at verses 22 to 24, this is what the Bible says. So the angel of the Lord. Now, you know, in, 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 uh, in the Old Testament, a lot of times the angel of the Lord is, uh, we, we, we take that to mean it's the pre-incarnate Christ. Whether this is an angel, that's just doing God's bidding, or whether this was the second person of the Trinity, Christ himself, doing the slaughtering, we don't know. Uh, I don't think that point uh, is, you know, I don't think that's a big point here. That's not, that's not the emphasis here. You know, who was the angel of the Lord? Um, the point is, uh, the angel of the Lord, whatever that person or that character was, uh, he was doing the judgment. Um, he comes to this guy Aruna's threshold. A threshold was um, the place where, you know, after the harvest, they would take the, the, the grain and they would take it to the thresh, threshold to, to, to shake the grain and to separate the wheat from the chaff. That imagery of the threshold and the wheat from the chaff is a, it's a, it's a very common Old Testament imagery for judgment. So, so the angel of the Lord comes to the threshold and God commands him to, to stop. And David goes up to, to Aruna and, and this is what, what happens. Um, David wants to offer a sacrifice um, to the Lord because he knows he has sin. And this is what Aruna responds. This is how Aruna responds. Verses 22 to 24. Now Aruna said to David, let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the wo- oxen for wood. Seems like a pretty good deal, right? Aruna's a good guy. And here, you know, if I'm David, I'm going up to try to offer a sacrifice. I know it's got to be a very good sacrifice. And by golly, here's a guy saying, look, David, anything you need, you can have my oxen, use that, my wood, use that, my, my plowing instruments, use that. 
Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. You see, David's learned his lesson. Right before when he had those three choices, he chose something that didn't cost him anything. It cost everybody else a lot. It didn't cost him anything. And now given the second chance, he chooses wisely, right? He chooses to take ownership. If I was the one that sinned, I need to pay for it, right? If I made a mistake, I need to be held accountable, right? He's not going to offer burnt offerings to the, to the Lord with that which costs him nothing. A good leader takes responsibility for his actions. That's what a good leader does. Doesn't seek to escape responsibility or accountability. Takes responsibility, is held accountable for, for what he does, good or bad. It was hard to, to try to find. <laughs> it was hard to try to find a, an example of this. If you guys think of something uh, better, please talk to me after the service. The best example I could find. Um, this was about four or five years ago. Uh, there was a conservative media outlet uh, and an outspoken uh, contributor to that outlet. Um, you know, I didn't agree with him on many things. Um, I didn't agree, especially with the way he said things. He, he a lot of times he was brash and, and harsh, even though like the points he was trying to make, like I generally agreed with the content of the, of those points, but he was just like very brash. Um, he said something that was not good. He said something that was not good. What he did was he took ownership. He called a press conference. He said, as of this moment, I am resigning from this media outlet and I'm resigning my job because what I said was wrong and I should not be allowed to, to continue in that post. So for this guy that I had problems with, his style, that was a good moment. He did something good there. And, and in fact, in the last four or five years, you have not heard, he has not been on this scene. You know, you've not really heard about him. I mean, that's for all his flaws, right, as a commentator, uh, that was a, a, a brief moment of, I think, what a good leader does. He takes responsibility. He takes ownership. And that's what David does here. So we've seen David be a bad leader. We've seen him become a good leader. And I think, you know, we might be content with just leaving the chapter this way. But let me propose that there is a third kind of leader that is portrayed in our text, or maybe not portrayed, but maybe foreshadowed by our text. Okay? If everybody would look at verse 25, 2 Samuel 24, verse 25. This is what the Bible says, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn 
from Israel. Here's the question. Why? Why? Why does a burnt offering turn God's wrath away from the land? How does that work? Well, Scripture teaches us that a burnt offering was what we call an act of atonement. An act of atonement. All that means, that fancy word atonement, all that means is that there is a substitution that happens. First, the people's sins or your sins would be pronounced on whatever animal was used for that sacrifice. And that animal, the lamb, would die as a substitute either for your sin or for the people's sin. And that animal, that substitute, would have to die in order to satisfy God's wrath, in order to satisfy God's justice. That's what we call, in a fancy term, that's what we call propitiation. That's one part of atonement. The other part of atonement, once propitiation happens, as a result, once God's satisfied, uh, once God's justice is satisfied, then God's able to turn towards you and us in grace, in goodness, in kindness. That's what we call expiation. Uh, the psalm that we read and sang about, Psalm 66, is a wonderful example of propitiation and expiation. Most of the psalm is about God's goodness, right? God's goodness for us in creation, God's goodness for us in sustaining us, God's goodness for us in helping us when we deal with our enemies, God's goodness for us when in our salvation. And yet the, the, the central part of that psalm, Psalm 66, verses 13 to 15, is the burnt offering. The burnt offering. That's the central pivot point of that psalm. Why is God good to us in all these ways? It's because of this atoning sacrifice that has turned away his wrath, satisfied his wrath, and allowed him to be gracious towards us. So it was the burnt offering that atoned for David's sin. That burnt offering was a substitute and it satisfied God's wrath against him. And not only that, once it satisfied God's wrath against David, then God relented and stopped the plague and was able to heal and save the people. Now we also know that scripture is very clear in telling us that every Old Testament sacrifice points to Christ. That's what we read in our Old Testament and New Testament readings, right? Isaiah 53, about the coming Messiah, Christ, who would be led to slaughter like a lamb to die for our transgressions. 1 Peter 1, we were redeemed not with corruptible things, but incorruptible things by Christ's blood, who was led to slaughter like a lamb. Let me propose that this atoning sacrifice in 2 Samuel 24 foreshadows Christ. It points to Christ, who is the third kind of leader and is actually the best kind of leader who is yet to come. And this is the reason why chapter 24 is here at the end of David's life. You know, all of Samuel 2, 2 Samuel, we've read about David, how he's a good leader, how he grows and you know, rules Israel well. But why does the Bible end here with, with his flaw? Well, it's to show us that a better leader is coming. The best leader is coming. 
What makes the best leader? It's the one who sacrifices for us. You know, a good leader takes responsibility for his actions when he makes a mistake. The best leader never makes a mistake and puts his life on the line for us, sacrifices for us because he loves us. That's the best leader. You know, you can consider this more fully, right? What happens, take a step back, what happens in this chapter? Well, because of one man's sin, David's sin, an entire nation of people suffer. And yet, because of one sacrifice, not only is that man's sin covered up, but a whole nation of people is saved. Doesn't that foreshadow what Christ does for us on the cross? Romans 5. Because of Adam's sin, not only does Adam fall into sin, but all of us fall into sin and we deal with the consequences, the curse of sin. But because of one man's sacrifice, Christ's, not only is Adam's sin erased, but all of us in Christ are redeemed. I think God put this account of David's failure at the end of David's life to show us that there is a better leader, a best leader who is coming, one who doesn't make a mistake, and yet one who sacrifices for us, puts his life on the line, and dies for us so that we can be redeemed. What do I want us to take away from this? Uh, I think, you know, obviously, uh, I, I want us to, especially in light of, you know, every election season, this is something that we need to remind ourselves with, right? No matter if you're cheering because of what happened or if you're downtrodden because of what happened, doesn't matter. It's a, it's a reminder for us to, to, to refocus ourselves on following the best leader, right? Not earthly leaders who have flaws, but our heavenly leader, Christ. I think it also reminds us, the Bible is very clear in also saying that we ought to be like Christ in whatever position of leadership that we find ourselves in in our lives. Like I said at the beginning, some of us are parents, some of us might become parents, right? Some of us are husbands, some of us are teachers, some of us are church leaders or leaders of younger friends. At some point, we will be in a position of leadership. The Bible tells us, right? First John 3.16, we, we are to love. No greater love than this, than he who laid down his life for his, uh, for his brothers. And we are called to do the same. Um, and so for whatever uh, position of, of leadership uh, we find ourselves in, God calls us to, to be like that best leader who is Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for um, these words of encouragement to us that even in David's great sin, in, in that great tribulation that the entire nation went through for three days, even in those dark moments, Lord, you give us a, a bright glimpse of the leader who is to come in, in fact, has come. One who was better than David, 
one who didn't sin, one who didn't have to take responsibility or be held accountable for his mistakes because he made none. And yet, because of his love, he gave his life for us. Lord, thank you that it is he now in heaven who rules our lives and guides us and provides for us. He is our leader. He is our shepherd. Lord, give us grace as well. Meanwhile, as we are in this world, uh, in whatever types of leadership positions that we are called to, give us the grace to emulate our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.